the first thing I want to just ask is how are you faring in the midst of all of the craziness that's going on in our country right now? You're healthy. How are people in Ohio? You know, good overall. I mean, our, our governor has shown tremendous leadership right from the beginning and has really given guys like me, and I know a lot of citizens in Ohio, a lot of confidence that he really knows what he's doing. And it's not a political statement. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or what you are. But uh, Mike DeWine came out with a lot of, of, of strong types of actions early on to, number one, say that the NCAA tournament in Cleveland would have no fans, that the, the first four in Dayton would have no fans. And that was actually when I was down at the American tournament getting ready to broadcast. So, you know, it is what it is, Harry. You just got to go day by day. I, I won't lie to you. I think it's important to be honest in these situations that, you know, obviously there's anxiety, uh, even some depression early on. Yeah. You know, that it's the new reality type of thing. But, you know, my, my wife is working from home, which is wonderful. We've had to change the sexual, the sexual harassment guidelines within the company, <laughs> uh, which is a really good thing. And uh, my 14-year-old son is here to supervise us. So, you know, I stay out of trouble uh, for the most part. So, it's, you know, it's worked out fine. You're hilarious. <laughs> uh, one son at home and, and I think two or three grown, right? So how's your 14-year-old holding up? He's good. You know, he's a baseball guy and his goal was to play high school baseball and, and he made the freshman team, you know, right. now of course the, the season for all intents and purposes is going to be canceled, but we're working on summer league, you know, so he's, he has batting practice pretty much every day. We live in a place back here. I'll, I'll move my, my screen here so you can look over my shoulder. Oh yeah. You see, yeah. See the pond out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we go bass fishing and then over on this side, we actually set up a little, uh, hitting area so he gets regular live batting practice you know pretty much every day and then we've got a pitching machine and, and the whole thing so even when it rains I, I've got a, a wooden batter's box that he can step into you know so it's dry I mean so we got it all figured out it's, it's pretty, really pretty fun good for you uh for people that don't know and people on my website all know who you are so but but for somebody that might have wandered onto the website by accident <laughs> or something longtime college basketball coach uh, you did the NAIA thing, did Division One yeah. thing. I want to yeah. ask you about the NAIA thing. First of all, I've broadcast games at that crazy national tournament in Kansas that's City. That's like the wild, wild west, isn't it? The NAIA Nationals. It's the best, you know, Harry. What what years were you doing that, by the way? Uh, just a couple years ago. Okay. Just like two, three years ago. It's a great event. And really the highlight of my entire coaching career was 1985. When Rocky Mountain College, you know, it was my third season there. We had we'd taken over a program. We'd gone through 17 consecutive losing seasons. 17 consecutive losing seasons. That reminds it, me of a book I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about yeah, the book in a minute. Yeah, there's some truth that, that goes along with that book, by the way. And, and you know, Harry, it's been uh, fascinating to, to think back at that time. When I took over that program, I was 25 years old. I was the youngest college basketball coach in the country. And in our third season, you know, we won the we won the district championship and ended up going to Kansas City for the first time since 1951. And I recently reunited with all my players. I was inducted in the Rocky Mountain College Hall of Fame 34 years later, by the way. So I wasn't a first round draft <laughs> choice to get in the Rocky Hall of Fame. But what a blast it was to relive those memories and to give the listeners and, and viewers some context about the NAI National Tournament. There were almost 600 NAIA schools during that time. And only 32 went to the national tournament. Now think about that. Right. There's 68 teams in Division One out of 350 that go to the go to the NCAA tournament. 600 small college teams. 
Only 32 at that time went to the NAI National uh, Tournament, and it was literally uh, the highlight of my coaching career. I will never, ever forget it. NAI is a crazy world, but it's a fun world. I've done, I've done several years of broadcasting there. So, Mark, the, the people on my website, of course, were very Valley-centric, Ohio Valley and Missouri Valley-centric. Yeah. You know, that's us. And, and you deserted us, you know, for the American <laughs> Athletic Conference. Um, but, but you have been known, as you know, as the voice of the mid-major. Now, you're, right. you're, the, the American is a little bit bigger than mid-major, but, but talk about your passion for those mid-major schools. You know, it's really because of the way that I came up through the entire system. Now, Harry, I was not a very good basketball player. I played in junior college, had a nice little career at that level, wasn't good enough to go on and play, certainly at the scholarship level. And when I graduated from the University of Cincinnati, I wrote to 125 different universities for an opportunity to graduate assistant, and I got 124 rejections. So that gives you an idea of how marketable I was. And one of them didn't say no, didn't say yes, but also didn't say no, and that was Lynn Archibald at Idaho State University. So uh, I went and camped out on Lynn's doorstep, and, and eventually he, he knew I wasn't going to leave until he gave me a graduate assistantship, and so I, I just bore him out. So I started at Idaho State, and you know I, I, I soon saw – uh, the differences in levels within Division One, being an assistant at Idaho State University in Pocatello. Then I went on to be a small college head coach at Rocky Mountain and at Western Oregon. Had great success at both those schools. Then went and worked at Washington State in the Pac-10 at that time with, with Kelvin Sampson. Now, did we have more money? Yes. But did we have as much money as UCLA? Hell no. <laughs> That's the reality of it. And, and, then, and then I went and became the head coach of Central Connecticut State University, which was you know, not well-funded at all. But it was literally the worst program in the country when I took over. And I learned a lot of lessons along the way. And, and I learned a humility after getting fired in 1996. I, I learned how difficult it is to win at the Loyolas of the world, at once upon a time, the Wichita States of the world, at the Northern Iowas of the world. And also, just another little tidbit about it, you know, Harry, uh, we're from a similar generation, I think. I think I can make that assumption. Right I think there. that's right. Yeah. You, know, you look better than I do, but you know what? We're both, <laughs> I think, have some similar memories. There you go. So when I was a kid, Cincinnati was in the Missouri Valley Conference. Mm -hmm. and, and Cincinnati won back-to-back -back national titles in 61-62. I, I was four and five years old, actually, when they won those titles and then lost to Loyola in 63. And so the Valley, for me, Drake, Bradley, Wichita State, you know, all those great programs, I mean, that was my basketball world when I was a boy. And so when I had an opportunity to go into broadcasting finally and, and, and had some, some goals as to what I wanted to do, the Missouri Valley was where I wanted to broadcast because of my background. And I had the, the privilege of doing that for over 10 seasons. And gosh, Harry, as you know, what a ride it was. Just a great, great time and a wonderful league. I was talking to Doug Elgin yesterday about some of the trials of what's going on right now related to the coronavirus and how it's affecting college basketball. And we might talk about that a little bit. Uh, you're obviously an enthusiastic guy, Mark Adams, and your Twitter handle, Enthusiasm, uh, Enthusiadams, is spectacular. Um, where does that generate from? Give me some genesis of the enthusiastic part of your life. You know, it's uh, homegrown and inbred. I, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, um, you know, God gives you certain talents. And, and I think that your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness at times. And, but my greatest strength has always been my, my passion for things that I'm 
passionate and interested in. And, and basketball has always been a passion for me. And, and now, uh, you know, Harry, it's, it, we're so fortunate to get to what we do is to report on all these great players and great coaches and fr friends of ours, if you right. will. And I, it, I just never take it for granted. I, I can't help myself. I mean, you know, I'll never forget this. Adam Amin, I was with Adam Amin, who now is the, one of the greatest rising stars of play-by-play -play guys in college basketball. And Adam and I did the Sunbelt Championship game together. It was his very first championship game. And, you know, Adam was just a guy from Valpo you know, and another Valley school, by the way. And, and uh, he was very, very nervous. And he still recounts this. We were together down at the American. We were having dinner together and, and we were telling some stories and he told the entire group of, of ESPN folks that were down there that, you know, we did this game together and he'll never forget the, the advice that I gave to him. And I always give my, my play by play guys, I give him a forearm shiver before we start, just loosen them up a little bit, you know? <laughs> and so I give him this shiver and I looked, I said, Adam, think about this how many guys would love to be in your seat right now? You know, we have the greatest job in the world. Just have no fun. doubt. And, and, you know, he remembers that to this day. And now he's one of the most respected and high profile play-by-play -play professionals in the country. But that's where it comes from, Harry. I mean, before I go on the air, I mean, I'm jumping up and down in my seat. I'm getting ready to go. You know, I'm, I'm fist bumping everybody on our, on our team. And it, it's natural for me. It's, I just love it. Now, am I like this all the time? No. You know, I'm my downtime. I like to go out fishing back there and do that type of thing. But when it comes to college basketball, I've always had great passion for it. And, uh, and, and I've never forgotten what a privilege it is to do what we do. And I think that's key, too, that, you know, some guys worry about the games they don't have. Right. They think they should be on higher profile games. For me, every game is a national championship game. And I've done the SWAC, the MEAC, the West Coast Conference, the Big West, the the, the MAC, the Missouri Valley, the Horizon League. I mean, you name it, it goes on and on and on. And yes, now I'm in the American, uh, but to me, they're all national championship games. I said that to somebody the other day. I was getting ready to do a game, and they said, you seem excited. I said, it's the Super Bowl. Yeah. They said, well, no, no, it's just these two teams. I said, oh, no, not for me. Yeah. It's the Super yeah. Bowl today. That's exactly right, and that's why you're great at what you do, Harry. And the other part of it is you have a, you have a, a similar tendency and talent that my best play-by-play -play partners have. And that's that you're naturally curious. I love journalists. I love sports broadcasters that are naturally curious. And that's where like, like doing this show is really fun for me because you do your homework, you ask good questions, you know, and like, you know, I worked with Rich Hollenberg for 10 years. Right. And Rich was the best. I mean, we grew up together, you know, all those big Valley games, we did those games together and it was really a team effort. And neither one of us are shy now. We're both pretty creative and neither one of us are shy, which creates a, a great creative tension uh, of a brotherhood. And I'll never forget the years that I spent with Rich. In fact, let me grab this right now. I'll show it to you. Um, for my 60th birthday, Rich actually gave me these pictures of all the memories That's of awesome. all the games that we did together. And it's, it's like, I mean, there's Kirstie Alley. You see down at the bottom, we met her at, at a restaurant in, the, in Wichita. You know, Evan Wessel, Fred Van Vliet, Ron Baker right there. Uh, us to, a lot of those, those are at Wichita State because it seems like we live there most of the time. And then the top up here is a game that we did at Middle Tennessee State, Kermit Davis, and then, of course, the, the ever-famous Dumb and Dumber game. You know, I won't say which one was dumber, but I'm sure it was me. <laughs> but, you know, Rich was naturally inquisitive. And uh, during that time that we worked together for almost 10 years, uh, we were just locked in, and it was really fun. And you share a lot of those qualities that Rich had of being naturally curious. And I love that in a play-by-play in a -play partner or a host of a show like this. 
and those bonds, because I've had a couple different guys that I've worked a lot with, yeah. those bonds are really deep, aren't they? I mean, people don't oh. realize the depth of how you start feeling about that guy that's right next to you all the time. Well, you know, you, you have each other's back. I mean, when you're on a broadcast, look, there, there's going to be things that go wrong on live TV. Uh, it might be a mispronunciation of a name, which I take a lot of pride in rarely doing that, but on occasion it might happen. Or if your partner does that, then you know, I don't like to let them go. I like to jump in and say the name properly after they mispronounce it or have them correct me on the air as well. Now, some manuals would say, just let it go. I don't believe in that. I think moms and dads are watching. If you make a mistake, own up to it and away you go. Even with officials, for example, there was a call this year. Uh, it was the Indiana-Wisconsin game, which ended up being the, the, the game for the Big Ten Championship. And there was a call early in that game where I thought that the, the Indiana shooter uh, was, was fouled. But in fact, that was not the case at all. And I said on, in, in real time, that's a foul. Came back and showed the replay, and I admitted on the air, I was dead wrong. Bo Broski was right. And I think as broadcasters, you know, we owe that to the officials to be fair with them. When we miss a call, we should apologize to them. And I, I really think that's important. And that's what good broadcast partners do together as well. You don't cover for each other. You just correct each other when it's appropriate. And I think that's something that sometimes gets lost, as you know, in some of the broadcasts, because right. guys don't trust each other enough and don't work together enough. You have, as we mentioned, you moved on uh, here in the American quite a bit. Uh, tell us what you love about the American. I think it's a great conference. You know, it is. And, and I'll, I'll give you the backstory as to why I left, because a lot of people don't understand or know. Um, but you know, you spend, I spent all those years in the Valley and loved every single second of it. And what happened was that Len Elmore, then, you know, ESPN was downsizing and Len Elmore was doing the high profile American games at that time. And, and Len and, and ESPN parted ways. And so ESPN contacted me because by coincidence, Wichita State was also moving into the league. And, and my, you know, my bosses had seen me do all those big games at Wichita State over the years. And so they thought it might be a good fit. And the American also, the coaches in that league, who I know very well, also thought it would be a good fit. So there was a conversation, uh, from what I understand, the Final Four, and my name came up. And so uh, I was asked about, you know, would I be interested? And I said, yes. And then ESPN came back to me and said, well, you know, we, we think it would be a good move for you, that type of thing. And so, and, and you know, Harry, as much fun as I had, as much as I loved it, I also wanted a, a, a new challenge. You know, I wanted sure. something a little bit different to jump into. And, and I felt like I had done a lot of good for the Valley and the Valley had done a lot of great things for me, but, but it was time. And, and I feel good about that decision today. I, I miss the fans. I miss you. I miss the coaches. I miss the players, but you know what? There's, there's other coaches and other players now that I've <laughs> bonded with and found along the way. And it's, it's just like coaching, you know, when you coach at one school and then you maybe get another opportunity to go work at another school. And, and it's just a matter of, of gaining those new relationships as well. So the American's been great for me. Houston's pretty good, by the way, and they've got to have everybody back. They could be market down. They could be a Final Four team next year. You know, Wichita State has lost seven players to transfer. I was shocked. Now they've by signed that. three pretty good players. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the American moving forward with Connecticut going to the Big East. But believe me, it's not devoid of talent. I mean, Penny Hardaway gets some players at, at Memphis, Cincinnati, and John Brandon, who came from Northern Kentucky to Cincinnati, did a great job this year as the number one seed in the American. So there's a lot of great stories, a lot of interesting people, and uh, a lot of great players, too. It's been a lot of fun for me. Do, do you agree with me? I, I call it now there's seven major conferences yeah. in college basketball, and the American being one of them. I, 
I don't think there's five. I don't think there's six. I think there's yeah. seven. And I think the American is one of them. Yeah. And, and, and that's true. All you have to do is look at the budgets. I mean, Cincinnati, I mean, Memphis spends over $10 million a year on the men's basketball program. That's big time. You know, and anybody that spends over 5 million to me is, is all in with both feet. And there's about 90 teams in the country that do that from the Dayton Flyers on about three or four schools in the America or in the Atlantic 10 and then the entire American, the big East, and then all those other, you know, football playing schools we won't even mention, but th those, those are all the big budget folks that, that spend liberally. And you look at Houston, Cincinnati, Memphis, UConn, although they're like I mentioned, they're going to the, to the big East. I mean, those are all schools that, that spend liberally uh, for men's basketball. There's no question in my mind. I mean, I watch the American all the time. It is a quote unquote, if you want to call it power, well, I don't care what you call it. Uh, big time basketball with a lot of NBA guys running around. That's what it is. Uh, your do more with less store, you know, things that you pump out yeah. there for people. Uh, there's not a totally separate website for that, is it? It's just part of what you tweet out there to us all. Yeah, it's all on Twitter. It started many years ago when I started tracking all the different budgets and, you know, was able to, to kind of um, ascertain that home games were really important. And there's a reason why teams buy home games is so that they can, they can slant every metric in their favor. And by the way, I'm not against capitalism. If I was in charge of the Big Ten, <laughs> You'd do I would do the exact same thing. Right. You know? I mean, Harry, get this. According to athleticdirectoru.com, last season, uh, almost $35 million, $36 million were spent in buying home games in men's basketball. Wow. $36 million, okay? They bought about 600 home games in non-conference. The Big Ten was the best at it. 50% of their non-conference schedule, let me say that again, 50% of their non-conference schedule was bought home games. And they were going to get 10 or 11 bids. Again, I'm a capitalist. I, I applaud the Big Ten for figuring out the system, understanding how they could skew metrics in, in every way in their favor, and then leveraging it. I mean, in business, all I ever want is an unfair advantage, right? You know, I mean, in coaching, all I ever wanted was an unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. And so if you can use money to create that, that glut of games, and listen, give the Big Ten credit, they won 90% of those home games they bought. So I don't care what metric you use, and I don't care how you weigh home games versus what, I don't care what you do. You cannot convince me that that, that strategy, A, doesn't work, and the Big Ten isn't stupid. They're not, they're not spending 30, you know, they're not spending all those millions of dollars for 50% of the non-conference schedule just because they want to give out money to the folks that don't have money. That would be stupid, right? Right. There's a reason for it. There's a strategy. And then going to 20 games is another strategy along with the buying of home games. And it's worked out brilliantly for the Big Ten. So I applaud them. So do you sell T-shirts, do more with less? You should do that. Hashtag do more with less. Sell the shirts. If you don't, I'm going to. I might send you a check. You know, Harry, go ahead, first of all. This is a great story. So back 20 years ago, when I first started broadcast, about 23 years ago, I guess, with um, the Dayton Flyers, I did their post-game call-in show called Flyer Feedback. Well, I would go to the UD Arena, and I started doing television, different things locally. And I dubbed the UD Arena as the Dayton Decibel Dungeon 20-some-odd years ago. I, now, this year, of course, Dayton blew up. Now, they always have great fans, and they've always had a really good program. with the Elite Eight with Archie Miller a couple years ago. But anyway, there was a, a t-shirt company here locally that printed off the Dayton Decibel Dungeon t-shirts and hoodies. Now, all I got out of the deal was a hoodie and a t-shirt, but they were free, you know, <laughs> but I didn't get it. And they did mention that I did coin the phrase, which was good. 
but I didn't trademark it at the time. And so anyway, if you want to do something, do more, more with less with enthusiasms, that's, that's all cool by me. <laughs> hey, I do want to talk about your book. Listen, I am a slow reader. I love to read, but I'm a slow reader. I ordered your book uh, maybe a week ago, and Amazon said it'll come April 25th. I'm totally ticked off. Wow. It came like two days later. So I got it literally yesterday. Yeah. I'm 80 pages into it. It's spectacular. Take <laughs> us through a little bit of The Coach and the Geek. Tell people about this book. Well, first of all, thanks, Harry. I appreciate you. You'll have me on to talk about the book. I appreciate you. I think so. You're the one that actually bought the book, so I really appreciate <laughs> that as well. You know, so I, I probably made about four or five bucks on that deal. So thank you. So, so again, you can have the do more with less deal. We're, we're we're square now. All right? There you go. We're square. You know, I'm I'm driving down the highway one day, and I'm going on a sales call. I work for a, a software testing quality software development lifecycle quality type of company. And Jeff Van Fleet's the president, a really good friend of mine, and a total geek, by the way, okay? And so we're driving down the freeway going to Columbus, and he says to me, he goes, look, Mark, I know you won a lot of games, but you know what? I think you lost a lot of games, too. He said, how did you, when you took over programs and you knew you weren't going to be very good, how did you hold your team accountable? How did you keep them focused on the right successful types of behaviors? And first of all, what a great question, right? And I, I started talking to him about, something I developed as a coach called a career best effort strategy for both on the floor and off the floor. And I'll give you an example here. So we developed five areas of defense and five areas of offense where it didn't take any talent to do these things, just concentration and effort. So an example would be if I'm guarding you, you take a shot. My job is to make physical contact with you before I go get the rebound. Doesn't take any talent to do that, just concentration and effort. So what we did was we actually tracked that. I don't know of any other program during that time that was tracking those types of behaviors. There aren't many now even that do it this way. And so every player would get a grade in those five specific areas defensively, five specific areas offensively. And whether you played for two minutes or 40 minutes, you would get a grade for how you performed during your time. And it was about doing, it was about successful behaviors, not the end result. We felt like that those successful behaviors if, would manifest themselves in the long-term success. Here's what we found. When I took over Rocky Mountain College, 17 consecutive losing seasons, our third year we went to the NAI National Tournament, won 24 games that year. I went to Western Oregon. Western Oregon won 11 games in my first season. We were ranked the top 25 in my fourth season there. We won 75 games over a three-year period. I went to Central Connecticut, literally the worst team in America, 301 out of 301. Over a two-year space, in our last two years, we were the nation's leading shot-blocking team because one of our career best effort strategies was to leave our feet and challenge every shot. We led the entire country in block shots, and at the time, we were the second greatest shot-blocking team in NCAA history, to give wow. an idea. And we improved from 301 to in the 150s. Now, when you're 301, it's really pretty easy to improve, <laughs> right? So I, you know, I gotta be honest about that. And then we also did off the floor, and an example would be going to class. So I'd sit down every Monday with all of our players individually and assistant coaches and, and office staff, and we'd go over their career best effort strategy. So long story short is that all my teams had record GPAs because they went to class. They would ask two questions in class to engage their professor and their classmates. They would connect with their classmates by complimenting a classmate for maybe a statement they made in class or a question that they asked. There'd be all these kinds of things that didn't take any talent, just concentration and effort. And Jeff was fascinated by the concept and says, 
Mark, you should write a book about that. And I thought for a minute, I said, no, Jeff, we should write a book because I'm like ready, fire, aim guy. You know, I'm always a attack. He's very process driven, very disciplined. Uh, paralysis by analysis sometimes. We drive each other freaking crazy, but we love each other. And what you're reading in the book right now, Harry, is an agile process. It's what we would call agile in the software development world of every day we would meet together, we would drive the story forward and I would get creative ideas and work on those and then pull Jeff in on the geeky stuff. And it was a, a tremendous experience for both of us. Our agile process was effective. Uh, we found each other growing closer together as a team, just like the book. And, and today we run our business in that way as well. And so I'm very proud of it. It's the Coach and the Geek Building a Kick-Butt Culture. It's on Amazon.com. It's uh, $17.95 for the hard copy, which Harry bought, by the way. And it's $9.95 for the, for the Kindle. And it's a fascinating read. I mean, I've read it twice, and I really like it. You know, I really like my own book. So, so I want to know, is, that bas is the basketball technology real? Like, are there personalized basketballs and all that, like it says in yeah. the book? Yeah, there are. Now, the thing that, that, uh, that we started working through the book on is that, like all technologies, some of them work better than others. Sure. And so uh, we're actually going to be talking to coaches here coming up in the very near future because we have some ideas as to how you build culture and leverage technology. And, and so I actually did some of it with my third grade team. I coached third grade basketball. And so I used video, actually. Now, you can't do this during an NCAA tournament game or an NCAA game. Um, but, you know, I thought rules were more guidelines anyway. So in third grade basketball, uh, I felt like, you know what, I'm going to go up and I don't coach in the games. I just coach in practice. Okay. And then games, I sit down and Pat Lures, our head coach, he coaches in the games. They only call me in for late game situations, drop a play or something like that. So I would leave the bench, go up with my surface and I would just, you know, I'd video some of the game. And then during a timeout, I'd join the huddle and I'd tell the kids, get over my shoulder and I'd show them. And one of our career best ever strategies was being a stance. And of course, you know, kids are staying up locked neat, you know, and I say, what's, what's our number one rule? And they said, be in a stance. So, okay, well, let's take a look. I'll freeze it right there. Who's in a stance? And they'd say, well, nobody. All right, let's come out of this timeout. Let's play defense in a stance. Then the next timeout, it might be ball pressure. And I video it and then bring it over and say, okay, what's rule number two? It'd say ball pressure, right? Okay, well, here's the ball right here. Are we pressing the ball? Yeah. Well, now it reverses here. Are you pressing the ball? No. Okay, so we're one for two. Is that good enough? No. Let's go out. Let's pressure the ball. So we used video in third grade basketball games and ended up playing for the CYO City Championship, by the way. And without our best player, we lost in regulation. But, you know, you can teach third graders. Uh, there's no question in my mind. I coached those third graders the same way I coached my college team. I just didn't cuss. <laughs> but I coached them the same way. Well, one of my funnest opportunities one time post game, I'm talking to Brad Soderberg. You may know him. He yeah, Brad's a great defensive guru. Really good guy. So I'm talking to Brad after a game and they've beaten somebody and we're doing all the analysis. And then I said, okay, now I got to talk serious. And he said, okay, what? And I said, I'm coaching third graders. What do I do? Then he said, Harry, <laughs> just tell them to shoot every time because nobody's going to make it. But if they get offensive rebounds, they might put that one in. So we started breaking down third graders. That's what, that was really what connected us that night. We just guarded people. So my 14-year-old son, my son, son, Robbie, was an assistant coach too, which was really cool to coach together, by the way. And so we'd walk into the gym, and, and he'd always be laughing. He'd say, okay, Dad, what's the goal? And I said, the goal is for the opposing mothers to leave the gym completely frustrated. In <laughs> That's the goal. 
And so we'd sit on the bench, we watched because we guarded the heck out of people. I mean, we could fly. This was the best third grade defensive team in America. All right. I'm just telling you. <laughs> and, you know, while everybody else is coaching offense on third grade level, we're coaching how to stop people. And about midway through the first quarter, you'd start hearing it. And Robbie would, you know, nudge me and say, here we go, Dad. You know, and it was just, oh, it was fun. It was fun. You don't ever want to coach again, do you? Coach, third coach? graders. Yeah, I'll take the fourth graders next year. We're going to move up all the way through eighth grade with those guys. But, you know, as far as going out and coaching in college again, you know, Harry, um, it, it, listen, what you read in the book about Coach Woodward, and we won't give the whole story away, but let's just say that coach is addicted to winning. Would that be a fair assessment? Sure. Absolutely. And there's a constant struggle in the book between the geek and the, and the coach to, to understand that success is more important than winning. And then how do you bridge that gap to bring all those components of success together to ultimately get the results that you want? And, you know, there's a lot of truth in the book, first of all, it's a fiction, but there's a lot of true stories and bits and parts and pieces of true stories throughout the book. And, and that, that um, confrontation of the addiction to winning and how you overcome that. And, and I plead guilty to being that addict. And the night I got fired in 1996, I read in the newspaper that I'd been fired and I'm down in my den and my wife comes down and I looked at her, I said, honey, I'm sorry. Now, Judy never cusses, never raises her voice or anything. And she looks at me and she gets in my face. Don't you apologize for that. You took over the worst team in the country and they you know, did this, blah, blah, blah. Don't you ever apologize for me, to me for what you did. I said, oh, I'm not sorry about that. So what are you sorry about? I said, I'm sorry because I haven't been as good a father and husband as I should be. I've been addicted to my own teams. Instead of rebuilding college basketball programs, we're going to rebuild our family's life together. I give you my word. And that was 1996. And that's what I do today. And so the book has a lot of, me and a lot of other guys in it as far as the coach goes the geek is a conglomeration of a lot of different people on the way that jeff's met and that i've met and um, i hope people enjoy it so far the response has just been overwhelming i gotta admit i got a little misty at christmas yeah i did i, I read that part and it, it touched me and yeah. so uh now listen if you're a basketball fan and you care anything about this kind of stuff the coach and the geek i'm telling you it's really outstanding uh, before I let you go, because I've kept you way too long. That's okay. Uh, I'll stay as long as you want. Hey, listen, there's the COVID virus 19. Where are we going? <laughs> that's you know? True. Well, I mean, uh, hell, what am I going to do? Go out and hug somebody? <laughs> I, mean, I got nowhere to go. So I'm, on, I'm with you for as long as you want. There you go. Hey, uh, so Wichita State has moved to that league with you, as you mentioned. And the yep. Shockers, of course, haven't dominated the American, similar to the way they did at the Missouri Valley. Yeah. And how, so my question is, how's Greg Marshall doing? Like, is he enjoying that move? Have, has that been a great move for Wichita State? And how is Greg doing personally? Well, first of all, as far as Wichita State is concerned, the university, the basketball program, you know, it, it has been a good move for them. I mean, uh, the, the television exposure that goes along with the American, um, the, the, the crowds, of course, were always there, you know. Right. They're still there, by the way. It hasn't changed a bit, Harry. And the Doodah Diner still has the best monkey brains in America, too. So, you know, <laughs> let's get that in there right away. Um, so as far as the, the fan base goes, I think that they're energized and excited. Um, has there been a, a modicum of disappointment because they don't win as many conference championships as they did in the Valley? Maybe to the, to the uninformed fans. But you know those fans are really informed. They're smart. Yeah, they're. They, they get it. 
And, you know, the good news is in the American, it is not a one-bid league. It's a three- or four-bid league, mm. maybe even more than that on, on some occasions. And so, you know, the, the opportunity for making the NCAA tournament is more about being in the top two, three, or four versus winning the conference championship. Now, that said, uh, Wichita State had a really interesting year this year. I saw them early on. I thought they were good. Uh, Dexter Dennis then took a little hiatus from, from the team, and the team excelled without him. I mean, they played really well. Eric Stevenson, I think, dropped 30 on, on Ole Miss in a win against Kermit Davis's ball club. And Wichita State was rolling. I think they were 15-1, and 16-1, top 25 in the country. They were number 16 in America. Dennis came back somewhere during that time. And I'm not blaming Dexter Dennis, but I will tell you this. The dynamics on that team changed. Hmm. And at, at times they acted very young, but more importantly, really immature. And, and Greg coached the team, I think, differently than he normally would. Uh, I saw him in practice. He wasn't as, um, I won't say over the top, because I think Greg's, you know, Greg's always in control. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's doing it. But he probably wasn't as direct at times with this group. I think he understood he had a young team and was trying to bring them along. And I think it really created some issues internally of selfishness, not because of Greg, but because of the immaturity of the team not being able to adjust to each other and the changing of having Dennis, not having Dennis, and having Dennis again. And they had seven players now that have transferred. They've signed three pretty good players, by the way. I'm not too worried about them. I think they're still going to be, still going to be a, good, a good basketball program. But I did see Greg uh, right before the USF game. They had lost three consecutive games. He decided that he was going to start Noah Fernandez, Noah Fernandez, as a starting point guard in that game against Johnny Dawkins bunch in Orlando. Now to give you an idea of, of the familiarity I had with Noah Fernandes on my, on my game notes, I have all the players and stuff that typically play. And then I have another that says others, right? Noah Fernandes was in the others column. <laughs> yeah, I knew like where he was from. I didn't know anything that he could do. And Greg inserted the starting lineup because he was going to reward guys that played hard. And they won that game, and then they, they came back. They, they elevated themselves to uh, the number four seed in the American, which was a, 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 tremendous, a, a tremendous comeback in many ways from where they were 0-3 at one point. And, and I admired what Greg did, but obviously they've got cultural issues. He's talked about it publicly. He's talked with me about it privately. And you know now he's having to rebuild the culture that he once had with the Freds, the Rons, the Evans, the Takales, you know, guys like that. No question in my mind that Greg will do it. But, but it's been, I think, probably as hard a season would be my guess. I talked to Mike Kennedy the other day, their outstanding play-by-play yeah. -play broadcaster, and he was telling me similar things and that, wow, this, this was a different kind of a year, and he's having to reshuffle the deck, and probably kids leaving was actually better for the program. Yeah. You know, you can't have that, that cancer. And listen, there are a lot of good kids, too, that left the program. So sometimes, as you know, Harry, I mean, I've been married twice, you know, my second one, I've been married for 30 some, almost 31 years now. Worked out great. First one, obviously not so good. You know? mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that happens. And, you know, and, and this is a, I think an unusual year for Wichita state and, and, and listen, they lead the country in transfers, which is not what you want, but I also think it allows, you know, a coach to stand back and say, okay, I've got to own this. I've got to look in the mirror. And if anybody is capable of doing that and coming out the other side as a better coach, 
Greg, Greg Marshall's that guy. And how much better can he get? I mean, that dude right. can coach. We've both seen it. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the coming months, next season. And, uh, but Wichita State has such a great foundation. They're going to continue to be really, really good. What an amazing coach he's been. Unbelievable success. And, and you're right. You, you talked about him not being over the top, but he comes across pretty stinking intense. Yeah. And, and he can be uh, maybe an intimidating guy. And, and yet you also know that he is passionate about the right kinds of things. No question. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Um, so when my dad passed away over six years ago, uh, and you know this, I always wear a green tie to honor right. my father. Well, one of the early games that when I came back after my father's death was at Wichita State. And, you know, fans need to understand that, look, you, what you see on the sideline is what you see but that's not reality, right? That's not the way people are, you know, generally in their regular everyday lives. And, and Greg was a tremendous sounding board for me. Uh, one of my favorite pictures, I, I went in did a game. It was, it was literally right after my father died at a Wichita State game. And one of my favorite pictures is walking down the tunnel. Greg invited me uh, after the game into their locker room and Greg had his arm around me walking through that tunnel. And there's a, a shot of that. Steve Allison actually took that shot. I know Steve, the photographer that does a lot of the Wichita State games, all of them. And, you know, I'll never forget that moment. And we were talking to each other and he was just telling me, you know, how much uh, he loved me and, and how much he knew I missed my dad. You know, he misses his dad too. And, you know, it was just really a, a touching and special moment that I'll never forget and I'll always be grateful for. Yeah, people don't know that part of guys, do they? I mean, they yeah. just they, and they can't. I mean, it's not that people are insensitive. Right. They just they just yeah. can't know that other side of people. I you know, recently our friend Gary Rima has yeah. lost an afternoon radio show there in yeah. the Cedar Falls area and the first phone call he got was from Ben Jacobson. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's people just don't understand that stuff. You know, Gary, I just did a show on Thursday. His last show was Friday and I asked to come on. And I went through like all the great shows of all time, like MASH and Frasier, 11 Seasons, you know, all the way up to, you know, iconic, like, like Bonanza, 14 seasons. <laughs> and Gary's been on for 14 seasons, you know. So it was kind of a fun, fun way to equate the success that Gary had, you know, on that radio show all those years for 14 years. Such a great guy. What a great guy he yeah. is. Uh, before I let you go, you've done some NBA Summer League games. Do you enjoy that part of it as well? I mean, obviously, that might not be happening this year, but, but it's a whole different level, and, and the intensity is different, and those guys have different goals. But do you like that kind of broadcasting as well? Yeah, the intensity is off the charts. Uh, Harry, I went in with a preconceived notion of egos and, you know, the, all the baggage that goes along with it. God, was I wrong. Mm. I mean, it's, it, it is, I've grown so much as a broadcaster because, you know, when you do a college basketball game, it's about the X's and O's and telling the stories and all those kinds of things. The NBA Summer League is a, is a whole different animal. You're still telling the stories, right? But you're also trying to focus in on why is this kid different? Why is he special? Because guys that make the NBA are freaks. They're yeah, freaks yeah. at something. Sometimes only one thing and sometimes multiple things. Like, Fred Van Vliet's a great example. And you remember this. When I said that Fred Van Vliet was the best point guard in America and would play in the NBA. Remember that? Yeah. And people thought I was nuts. Absolutely crazy. But this is what I recognized in Fred. That he had the greatest freakish understanding 
of being a point guard than any other point guard I had ever seen. Now, I didn't get to call Stockton and guys like that, but that's the way I felt about him. And he's doing pretty well, by the way, from what I understand. And, and, you know, in the NBA Summer League, I'm looking for the Freds. I'm looking for the Rons. You know, I'm looking for the Pascal Siakam, which was another guy that I thought would turn out to be a very good pro, and he's turned into a very good pro. So what happened for me uh, was, was that, Harry, I was able to take all this knowledge that I had had from all the years of coaching, broadcasting, watching, being a fan, everything, and roll it into why is this guy a freak or why isn't he? And how could he fit in some pro system? And it's a whole different dimension of broadcasting for me. It's helped me to grow tremendously and meet a lot of really interesting and different people in the NBA. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to go to Vegas and experience the NBA Summer League, it should be a bucket list thing. It's that good, Harry. Hmm. It's really, really compelling basketball. And every player is out there with, with the goal of not necessarily showing off their skills, but how can they show that they're a freak at something? And they have to give great effort in order to show that. That's what's really cool about it diving on the floor for loose balls. It's, it's really a, an amazing thing to watch and a fun thing to be a part of. Well, listen, when I finish the book, I might call you back and tell you if I'm mad or excited. I don't know how it's going to turn out. People should go to Amazon, get the coach and the geek building a kick butt culture. Like I said, I'm a slow reader. I've only read 80 pages in the last 12 hours. I mean, I'm just like devouring. <laughs> it's spectacular. Uh, appreciate your time, Mark. I really do. It's always fun to catch up with you. And uh, really uh, praying for you and everybody that we are yeah. connected to in the basketball world during this whole coronavirus n- nonsense. You know, really want the, our friends to stay, stay, stay safe. You betcha, Harry. And, and thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's great to reconnect with a great friend like you. And, you know, I wish you great health. And obviously to everybody across the country, you know, uh, we've got to reach out. And, and that's one thing, Harry, that you did with me. You reached out. It made my day today. You know, I'm sitting here in an office you know, many, many miles from you, but we're able to connect in this format. It's really, really fun. So God bless you, Harry, and thanks for everything. You too, Mark. God bless. Have a uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. You betcha. Enjoy the book. All righty. Thanks.